Welcome to the Element of Surprise. Uh, my name is Chadwick J. Suet. This is the Element of Surprise, a mentally irregular podcast. And um, tonight we're going to talk about forgotten TV shows. That, of course, what you just heard was the beautiful, wondrous, possibly best opening theme song to any TV show of all time. The theme song to Perfect Strangers. Um, but we're not going to talk about great shows like Perfect Strangers. We're going to talk about forgotten TV shows, or shows that had like one or two episodes and then immediately got canceled, uh, specifically from the 70s and 80s, uh, dabble a little bit into the 90s, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll get there. You know, I, I, I can't give you the whole fucking wheel of cheese, I gotta give you a little bit. Uh, before we get it started, we're going to uh, talk about what the fuck ever I can't remember. Oh yeah, how about uh, checking out the podcast, this podcast, at... Uh, eosmentallyirregular.podbean.com. That's our hosting site. All episodes up on Podbean. Uh, I also share them on the Facebook page at www.facebook.com backslash eosmentallyirregular. Uh, from the Facebook page, you can join the Facebook group we call the EOS Army. And uh, check out all the element of surprise things that I put on there, as well as be a part of the EOS community. You know, it's, uh, I'm trying to get a nice little community going. Um, I got more people than I thought I would, so that's nice. But uh, let's let's get right into it. You know, so forgotten TV shows. So there are there are a lot of TV shows I can mention that are you know 
you know, everyone remembers. You grew up in the in the eighties, like I did. You grew up in the eighties and nineties. You 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 know your your you know must see TV. Uh, you know there was Perfect Strangers, there was Full House, there was Alf, there was uh, Family Matters, there was Family Matters actually being a spinoff of uh, Perfect Strangers. Not many people know that, but it is. Um, there was. Uh, Night Rider. There was fucking so many that I can't even fucking think about what I'm trying to say right now. Um, you know, too many, too many to mention, basically. But you know what I'm saying. And in the '70s, there were some good shows too. The Incredible Hulk uh, was huge back then. Uh, you know, with Bill Bixby, things like that. But you know, I'm going to talk to you guys tonight, right now, about some of the lesser-known ones, some of the forgotten TV shows of the '70s, '80s, and '90s. And we're going to begin with a show that was on TV in the late 70s, and it was called ARK 2. A-R-K, and then the numeral, the Roman numeral 2. And the premise of this show was that a crew of space hippies from the future cruise around in a, uh, a the, the post-apocalyptic hellscape with their monkey, who's a scientist, in a futuristic RV to make the world a better place. Because, you know, if, if it's the future and you're living in the post-apocalyptic world, do you want it to be like The Walking Dead? Or do you want it to be cruising around in a cool uh, science RV with a monkey in a lab coat? Me, I'm going to choose the latter. Because the first one, I'm always just struggling to survive. The second one, I've got a fucking monkey in a lab coat. Um, you know, and that, it was the 1970s. What do you want to say? A, a lot of these live-action shows were really kind of about preaching moral lessons of some sort. Uh, with a budget of $75 per episode. So basically someone would turn in a script for an episode about the dangers of sending toxic waste to the moon, and the production team would then have to find a way to turn a cheese grater and three walnuts into an op opening establishing shot of frozen space sludge riding a meteorite to Moon Base 7. That's just the way it was in the 70s. Um, and in the show Arc 2, this cheese grater was a futuristic RV. And the RV was the centerpiece of the show. It was like Kit in Knight Rider, or Estrogen in Xena Warrior Princess. You know, it was the center, it was the focal point of the entire show. Um, another commonplace trope in these TV shows was the nonsens nonsensical use of live animals. Um, the Holy Grail of which is putting a uh, chimpanzee on screen, giving it clothes and a human persona, and just kind of filming and seeing what happens. And for Arc 2, they did exactly that. They put clothes on a chimpanzee, named it Adam, and just started filming it with the very high hopes that it would do something cool and scientific, like maybe play with some mercury, and not do something very awful and bogus, like eat a co-star's fingers and toss its shit all over the science bus. But, you know, you take what you can get. What they ended up with was Arc 2. But, like I said, that was the 70s. I mean, every man alive back then looked like he was ready to sell an Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme at a moment's notice, and every TV show was a nonsense burrito seasoned with wildly inaccurate science that could in no way, shape, or form be verified. Now, as, 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 a, as a podcaster, as a, as a man who is a, you know, a... Uh, a, a vocal and audio-only type person who can barely keep his own thoughts 
straight who you listen to. I, I kind of know what it's like to have to perform for an audience. And it makes me wonder what being an actor in one of these shows was like. Because you'd probably, based on the everything I've seen from these old forgotten TV shows from the 70s, it, as an actor, I, I tried to put myself in their headspace. And this is what I came up with. You'd probably just wander onto a cardboard set that's just falling down around you, you're still dizzy because the fishbowl that you're wearing as a space helmet is freshly spray-painted silver and the fumes are getting to you. Somebody nearby shouts the word action, and then a live bobcat with a crown and fake angel wings jumps out of a cage towards you and you've just got to make it all work. That, that was the job. That's what it was like. It was the 70s and that's what it was like. That's what you had to do. And Arc 2 was no different. You know, uh, chimpanzee in, is, is playing with Mercury one minute. They're driving around in an RV bus. They're fighting a mutant. Next thing you know, don't forget trees. This tree is the last tree in the, on Earth. Save the trees. That was, you know, whole moral code. Uh, there's another show from 1976 I stumbled upon. This one was called Monster Squad. And I want to be very clear, this is in no way related to the cult classic film that uh, had the werewolf in the phone booth scene, which the legendary Mike Holshue uh, tells a wonderful story about, if you ever get to speak to him. Um, maybe maybe he'll be on, uh, maybe I could have him on here and talk about that. You know, he could also tell you about Brandon dying cigarettes out on his face. I'm not going to ruin it any more than that. But uh, this, this show, Monster Squad, has nothing to do with that film, but it is 100% proof of how very little effort it took to get a TV show off the ground in the 70s. Basically, you only needed access to a prop house and an incredibly loose concept of what you wanted the plot to be, and they and any studio would just pick it up and say, yes, yes, we'll have that. Because mm. here's the premise of Monster Squad. Some weird college kid, whose name is Walt, works the night shift at a wax museum, which... For the record, uh, kind of a side tangent, wax museums were oddly popular in the 70s. Like, there was a lot of people being like, hey, let's go check out the wax museum. I heard they've got a new wax bust of, of uh, Abraham Lincoln there. Wow, it looks so real. They, they, I don't get why they were popular in the 70s, but they, they were oddly popular in the 70s. And uh, anyway, so Walt works in the night shift in a wax museum, and for no established reason whatsoever, he builds a high-tech crime-fighting computer in an Egyptian sarcophagus, which then, of course, goes crazy, and again, for no other reason besides furthering the plot, brings the wax sculptures of Dracula, the Wolfman, and Frankenstein to life, where they all immediately decide to start solving crimes. Uh, basically, Dracula, Wolfman, and Frankenstein would drive around in their monster van, which was another cool RV, because in the 70s, that's another, that was another TV trope. The main character was either traveling from town to town um, on foot, in a truck, or traveling with a group of people in an RV. So the monster squad, being Dracula, Wolfman, and Frankenstein, would drive around in their monster van until they'd find some Scooby-Doo villain reject and, uh, you know, solve the crime involving them. Meanwhile, uh, the nerdy teenager, Walt, would monitor their status from the Wax Museum like a 70s teenage Alpha 5 from the Power Rangers. Um, he was in no way, shape, or form a 70s teenage Zordon. He was 100% Alpha 5, 
and the computer being built into a Egyptian sarcophagus, which is not even a real Egyptian sarcophagus. It was a wax sculpture of an Egyptian sarcophagus. Makes no fucking sense to me. But hey, 70s, plot. Uh, the best part is that there's absolutely no reason at all why these three legendary movie monsters would be fit for, for any crime fighting whatsoever. Uh, they just sort of went through the motions. And they had regular powers, like Dracula would turn into a bat, and the werewolf would, uh, or the wolfman was a wolfman and would howl. You know, their powers were basically, they were just pale, hairy, and tall. That was Frankenstein, uh, Dracula, and the wolfman's powers in this show. Um, I'd like to know how anybody, anybody at all, thought that this would be a good idea. And I, again, had to put myself in a certain headspace. You know, what exactly was the 3.45 a.m. cocaine and LSD-fueled writer's room idea session that eventually gave concept to this, or life to this concept? What was that like? Um, and how many other ideas did they spitball and then just toss aside so that this show could make the light of day? That, I have to ask myself that, these questions, and I'm never going to know the answers, but Jesus Christ, can you imagine? I'm... I'm personally pretty convinced that they tagged a bunch of words on the wall, blindfolded each other, snorted cocaine, and then just threw darts. They're like, okay, all right, all right, cool. Uh, yeah, 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 darts, all right. So, um, Dracula, yeah, Dracula, little man of Frankenstein. All right, next, uh, Kevin, you're up, throw your dart. Whew, all right, okay, all right, crime fighters. All right, so uh, we got Dracula, the man and Frankenstein are going to be crime fighters, okay. Uh, we're, we're, we're all out of darts and cocaine, so let's just roll with that. And that became the show. Then some studio executive, dangerously close to being fired, said, Sure, what the fuck ever, I don't care anymore, and gave it the green light. And next thing you know, you had a TV show called The Monster Squad, which was basically live-action, poorly-plotted Scooby-Doo. And that's saying something, because the plot of Scooby-Doo was always the same. Um, moving on, there was another TV show in the 70s, called Run, Joe, Run. And to tell you about this one, I first need to ask you a question. How do you turn the plot of The Fugitive into something suitable for Saturday morning TV? Uh, the Fugitive, of course, being the show Dr. Richard Kimball was accused of uh, murdering his wife. He's on the run. He blames it on a one-armed man. Um... The answer is make Dr. Richard Kimball a lovable German shepherd, obviously, because animals. That is the entire plot of Run, Joe, Run, which sounds to me like a title better suited for a show about a track and field star, but no, it was absolutely insane show about a dog being falsely accused of a crime and on the run to prove his innocence with a $200 bounty on its head. A $200 bounty on its head, and not a penny more. That's important. So, during the cross-country journey to prove his innocence and avoiding a soiree of bounty hunters who are going through a living hell to kill a dog for a measly $200, Joe encounters and helps people in need along the way, much like uh, Bruce, uh, David Bruce Banner in The Incredible Hulk. Um, first, again, let's address this $200 bounty. Yes, it was the 70s, and yes, it's a bounty on a dog. But these human bounty hunters in this show, 100% had to be spending more than $200 on just their bounty hunting gear alone. Traps, dog treats, 
tranquilizer guns, camouflage outfits, fuck, gas, gas in their vehicles. That alone would have them asking if it's even really worth the effort. Or should have them asking if it's worth the effort anyway, but no, they were all fucking on board with this. They're like, what? A $200 bounty on a dog? Puh, easy pickings. Let's spend $1,800 worth of fucking equipment and track down this dog to not recoup our losses at all. Second, and drastically less important than the $200 bounty, is that once again, it was the 70s, so a live dog was picked to play Joe. And the more I think about it, the more I convince myself that shows back in the day were all about putting real animals on camera and just seeing what happened. I will say that as ridiculous as it is, out of all the shows that I've mentioned or will mention in this podcast episode, this one, Run Joe Run, had the most coherent plot by far. And that says a lot, because the whole concept speaks to how completely overboard the entire 70s TV show compilation was. Uh, when a fugitive German shepherd helping regular people with everyday problems and narrowly avoiding a crew of bounty hunters hell-bent on collecting $200 cash is the most conservative and realistic plot of the bunch, you really have to wonder about the mental stability of those involved. Y you see what I'm saying? So, there was also a show, moving into the 80s, the decade of excess, there was a TV show called Auto Man, which is what happens when a drunk and desperate writer watches the movie Tron, pisses himself, falls off his lazy boy, and then goes straight to his typewriter. So the plot goes like this. There's a cop. The chief doesn't want that, that cop on the streets and puts him into the computer lab where he creates a holograph of a man who naturally comes to life and, wait for it, fights crime. Are you seeing a pattern here? Oh, and also he's arrogant as fuck and uh, makes holographic cars and shit because why the fuck not? 80s logic. 80s logic. If it's an idea, it's a good one. Any idea, literally. A snow cone machine has to raise a baby? Perfect. Great idea. What? There's a time-traveling bathroom? Fucking awesome. Paul Reiser? Yep. Fantastic idea. A dinosaur that can read minds, drive a car, drives a car and knows karate? Best idea I've ever heard of, champ. Why didn't you tell me that yesterday? That was 80s logic. Auto Man was not in short supply of 80s logic, and it shows. Average criminals would out-savvy average cops in almost every episode at almost every turn, but the square-jawed hologram person would easily outwit them at, at anything. The, the fake person who doesn't really exist outwits the criminals who are, they're not even, like, committed, it's not even, like, a like a collective of, like, ooh, world domination plots. It was, like, jewelry store thieves who broke in at uh, 2 in the morning and stole a handful of jewelries because there was a cop car waiting across the street that watched them do this. They'd get away from that cop car just fine. No problems. But then the fictitious holographic man would make a fictitious holographic helicopter that they'd be like, ah, don't slam us with that helicopter! And then the helicopter would go right through them, and then the real cops would catch up, and Auto Man would get all the credit, because he was arrogant as fuck. The next show I'm going to tell you about 
The only way I can do it is uh, like this. Does everybody remember a movie called The Warriors? In case you don't, it's a... Yeah, you remember The Warriors, right? In case you don't, it's a movie about a street gang fighting other street gangs to get back to their territory, back to their turf. Uh, it wasn't gay turf. It was just regular turf. It, it's a, it was a beach. They were wearing leather vests and denim jeans. One of, the ba one of the gangs they fought was dressed like a baseball team, and you're telling me that the Warriors were the gay, ge were the gay ones? Yeah, that's their get-up. Charles, one of the fucking... Yeah, one of the gangs in the Warriors was dressed like a street hockey team with fucking spray paint who spray-painted themselves silver and gold. Mm -hmm. They were dressed like Dynamo from fucking... Uh, um, the Running Man... And the and you're saying the Warriors are the gay ones. Jesus. Anyway, if you haven't seen the Warriors, go watch the Warriors. Then come back to this episode. Because I'm going to answer a question for you. What does that have to do with 80s TV shows? Well, there was a short-lived 80s TV show called The Renegades, which is basically what if the Warriors worked for the police? That makes sense, right? It doesn't. Oh, well, who cares? 80s logic. So, keeping with the outdated 80s stereotypes, the Renegades had uh, a very ethnically diverse group that made up uh, so much of what to love about this street gang. They had a black guy with earrings who could punch. They had an Asian guy who did kicks. They had a tough chick who was both tough and a chick. They had a Latino guy who was incredibly Latino. And for the leader, who's the only person you can think of? That's tough yet likable enough to wrangle this ragtag group of street urchin together. There's only one answer. Patrick Swayze. He was, the, he was the leader of the group. So here's the deal. If you go to YouTube and look up the opening, the opening credits, or the intro to the, the show The Renegades, you will find an intro that makes Knight Rider look like a documentary about proper car maintenance. I'm not kidding. It is that good. And I'm going to assume that what you just did was pause this episode, go to YouTube, and watch the intro to the Renegades. So did you see how good they are at fixing their, dramatic, their hair dramatically? Did you see how good they are at walking? My sweet dick, those guys can walk. It's crystal clear that if there is any inner city street crime, these guys will fight it. And for me personally, what I found most interesting is how in the 1 minute and 48 seconds that the intro gives us to learn about the Renegades through quick introduction shots and shadowy footage of their aforementioned walking is how you see the uneasy alliance between the Renegades and the cops. It's made very clear by Kurtwood Smith's uh, disapproving head shaking, but... Uh, the counteracted by James Luisi's casual shrug that even though these guys are working for the cops, it's not all smooth sailing. Kurtwood Smith, uh, popularized from, uh, most probably well known from uh, Robocop as Clarence Boddicker, um, Dead Poet Society, or uh, that 70s show as Red Foreman, Kurtwood, he clearly does not approve of these ruffians out there on the outskirts of society. But James, James Luisi, he sees something in them. And then seeing that James Luisi will be their bridge to eventually winning grumpy old Coatwood Smith over, the Renegades just hang back, sharing some smiles and glances with each other before a final shot of them walking out of a mist-filled alley directly into the camera. Renegades! Fuck yeah! I'd watch that show. 
I don't think I was alive for that show, but I would have watched the shit out of it. They should redo that show now with the original cast, most of whom is dead or in their 80s. Um, so this next one, let me, let me set the scene for you. Let's start here. This next one I stumbled across while researching these other ones. And I have watched it uh, in full three times right by now. Three times so far. I tried to get my fiancé and son to watch it. I uh, sent a link to uh, my old buddy Grimace to watch it. And pretty much the response I've gotten from everybody I've tried to make watch this is within the first five minutes, this is unwatchable. What the fuck is this? Why did you do this to me? You're a horrible person. Um, as I've said many times before, if you go down enough rabbit holes, you will eventually find something so unbelievably insane that completely takes everything you know about reality and brings it into immediate skepticism. The year was 1981. A virtual slew of TV executives wisely deduced that the 70s were over, and they could no longer rely on simply putting apes in lab coats and rolling the cameras. They needed something fresh, something that they could used to reach the cold-hearted teenage youth of the early 1980s. Something that could show them that, despite these uncertain times in an ever-changing world, everything would be alright, and that they, as TV executives, totally can relate to what young people coming out of the 70s, moving into a new decade, you know, are going through. What was that something? The power of song. And thus was birthed a musical sketch comedy for teens called The Best of Times. So let's move on. Let me tell you about this abortion. To show how much the show truly understood the teenagers of the, of the, of the era, of the ni early 1980s, they cast totally normal, in no way insane teenage actors that the audience could, could easily relate, relate to. Like Crispin Glover. Everyone relates to Crispin Glover. He was the dad in Back to the Future and the star of a bunch of weird-ass stuff and music that he sings sometimes. In the opening moments of the show, matter of fact, in the first, in the first minute of the show, Crispin's mom is complaining about how messy his room is and refers to him as Crispin. So he's, he's playing himself. What we've learned right off the bat is that this is Crispin Glover playing Crispin Glover. And... He's just Crispin Glover playing Crispin Glover talking to the camera to an unseen audience, which I personally 100% believe is still how Crispin Glover lives his life. He just wakes up every day and talks to an unseen camera and narrates things like as if there's a live audience there. He just talks to unseen audience at specific intervals in time. Oh, and uh, if Crispin fucking Glover isn't a uh, relatable enough guy to you as a teenager in the 80s, as the episode continues... Literally two minutes later, he introduces us to his gang of friends, like his best friend, Nick, who, of course, is played by professional maniac Nicolas Cage, because why the fuck not at this point, right? Well, why not? We've already cast Crispin Glover as our fucking lead. Let's just throw Nicolas Cage into the mix. Um, that said, in retrospect, I can totally see a teenage Crispin Glover being friends with a teenage Nicolas Cage, but it still doesn't mean that I can in any way relate to them or see them as regular teens just like me. 
Um, not without a concussion and a constant IV drip of LSD, anyway. Um, anyway, Crispin introduces us to Nick, his best friend, who, like most teenagers, spends his days in cut-off blue jeans shadow boxing at the beach. His uh, friend, yes, his jorts. His friend, his other friend, sits behind him while he's shadow boxing and watches him shadow box while eating a hamburger sadly. Uh, another staple of realistic teenage activity, if I might say so myself. Now, as for the musical aspect of the show, Crispin, Nick, and their pals will literally break into song and very loosely choreographed dance with absolutely no provocation whatsoever. I mean, they don't need any fucking reason at all. It doesn't matter if they're at the supermarket or a car wash, or hanging out in uh, their own bedrooms. Any phrase, comment, glance, or action will cause them to break into song and dance. They break into a, into a music, uh, musical song and dance routine over Crispin Glover buying a pair of jeans. They break into song because they've got to work after school. Literally, any reason at all will cause them to sing and dance. Any fucking reason whatsoever. And in between their random fucking dance routines, each of the characters will take a moment to address the audience and will ask their thoughts on one of the many teenage issues of the time, like finding a job, boy problems, or being drafted in case there's a war on El Salvador. Um, I can honestly say that there is no experience on this earth like watching Nicolas Cage go from manic dancing in denim overalls and an ascot to walking on the beach with tears in his eyes, asking the viewer if they're worried about being drafted to fight in El Salvador, which, now that I've said that out loud, is a sentence I honestly thought I would never, ever say. Um, in fact, a teenage musical show starring Crispin Glover and Nicolas Cage may be the most insane thing to ever be seen on TV, unless there's, I don't know, like an O.J. Simpson prank show or something. Oh, wait, that was a thing, too. I mean, if these gems can get made, virtually anything should be able to get made. Here, I'm going to spitball some random TV show ideas for you now. Just off the top of my head. I'm just going to spitball random TV show ideas, and you, as an audience, you're going to listen, and then I want you to get back to me and tell me if you think that they are as relatable and watchable as the TV shows that I just fucking mentioned to you. Um, number one, right off the top of my head, Bat Clerk, a human slash vampire bat hybrid escapes from a government lab but then saves the president's life so he's given u.s citizenship and moved to a local suburb now he needs to learn how to live like an american so he rents an apartment gets a human girlfriend and finds a job at the local convenience store let the hilarity ensue bat clerk i even got a catchy theme song Bat clerk, what's he doing? Bat clerk, refilling the vending machine. Bat clerk, here's his girlfriend. What are they doing? It's so crazy. Bat clerk. That's the theme to Bat clerk, by the way, which I'm 100% behind making. Um, how about this one? A typical suburban sitcom, like Full House, only every character in it is an anthropomorphic cat. And, uh... It's basically just full house if all the characters are cats, and we just call it meow, meow and then. Meow and then. Um, ooh, here's an idea for a show, just off the top of my head. Abraham Lincoln gets transported to the 1970s, where he has to coach a high school basketball team. 
Uh, along the way, he helps the team learn to believe in themselves and in each other. You could call it four score. And the word score is score, like, like you know, scoring points. Um, Jesus, let me think. Let me think. How about... How about... How about a, a dolphin? A dolphin with, ro with robotic legs that allows them to walk on land uh, rides around in an, R in an RV with three multi-ethnic teenagers doing, guess what? What else would they be doing? Solving crimes. Uh, title, Operation Blowhole. Um, how about... How about... Let's see, let's see, let's see. How about, um... A man and his dog. That The dog knows all, all forms of mixed martial arts there are to know. They're on the run from a shadow organization because they want to use the dog for evil. Title, Bark. B-A-R-K. Um, shit. How about... How about Knight Rider? But instead of it being Knight Rider, the car is a car that can transform into a boat. And it has a sassy, black, Louisiana woman's voice. And, you know, like, like it's driving along and they're on a car chase. But then they, the guys who are, they're chasing get to a dock and get into a uh, fucking, like, speedboat. And they're pulling away and they're like, see you later, sucker. And the, the car's just like, mm-mm, sugar, I don't think so. Not today. And the car just drives into the water and turns into a boat. Um... But also, the driver is a 16-year-old girl with boy problems, and you can call it by land or sea. Um, how about a uh, TV show where uh, a, a nerdy teenager is bitten by a radioactive horse and becomes a centaur, who then solves uh, only horse-related crimes in CSI-type murder mysteries? His sidekick could be a racing jockey named Taco, and then there could be a surly police detective who doesn't like them but begrudgingly works with them. You can call it Cult Case Mysteries. Um, yeah. Let's literally, just, you know, anything with the TV tropes of all the fucking 1970s or 80s just thrown together. All these TV shows would be fucking great. Um, how about Above Average Joe? He's just a typical office employee who learns that he can see the future when he drinks more than four cups of coffee. And uh, each episode is about him helping somebody. You know, uh, weird shit. These are, uh, any one of those ideas I just spouted out to you is at least on par with all the actual TV shows that I told you about. Um, I highly recommend you go to YouTube and check out each and every one of them. And uh, that's that. That's what I got for you tonight. Before I let you go, I'd like to, of course, ask that you check out the following podcasts. There's a fireside chat hosted by my very good friend, Ryan McCormick. That's available on Libsyn. There's the um, McSauce comic book podcast, Ian, Paul, and Matt. That's on Podomatic. There's Case in Point with Justin Case on Audioboom. And if there are a lot more of where those came from, you know? This is a day and age where it's not that hard to have a podcast if you really want one. So... I'll leave that with you guys. I'll leave you guys with all that right now. Um, go to YouTube. Also, check out the Element of Surprise YouTube channel. I forgot about that one. Like, subscribe, mash the like button. When I say mash it, I mean physically take your fist, ball up a fist, and punch the little thumbs up logo on the computer as hard as you can. 
to mash the like button and then subscribe and then anytime there's a new episode up that's uploaded on the YouTube channel which is every time I record one you'll automatically be notified um, that said thanks for listening I as always I really do appreciate it and um, without any further ado let's cue the fucking bear music Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? All those nights when you've got no lights, the check is in the mail. And your little angel by its tail and your third fiance didn't show Sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name And they're always glad you came You wanna be where you can see The troubles are all the same You wanna be where everybody knows your name wants to be a girl Be glad there's one place in the world where everybody knows your name And they're always glad you came 